A reading from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. This is our fourth week in the sermon series, The Art of Life. And if you haven't listened to the first three, I recommend that you check out the Waterstone Church app and go ahead and listen to them. In the first week, Paul talked about how we deal with, with suffering and disappointment. In the second week, Nick talked about how do we use our time wisely. Last week, he, he shared some really practical tips of how do we uh, use our money well. And this morning, I get the opportunity to share with you why I think that living a life in community is wise. Now, there is a tension when I talk to people about community. People instinctively know that community is something that's really important to their being. They hunger for it. They thirst for it. And yet, when I talk to a lot of people, people don't feel like they have much community. People might have a community, but they don't feel like it goes very deep. And so this morning, I want to talk about how do we enter into a community that is deep and that is stable. And so... This morning, Waterstone is one large community, isn't it? We have about 1,200 people here on a given weekend, and it's hard to go deep with 1,200 other people, much less remembering 1,200 names, isn't it? 
So here at Waterstone, we see community truly coming to life in small groups, the groups where we get together during, throughout the week, where we meet together for an hour and a half, two hours, and discuss life and faith. And so this morning, as I continue, I'm going to be using the words small group and community, community interchangeably because that's where our community really happens here. And so this morning, my goal, I'm going to be up front with you, my goal is that I would be able to convince you of the importance of joining one of our small group communities. And I hope that not only do I convince you intellectually of the importance of joining a small group community, I hope that I will spur you into action so that you will actually go out and join a small group community. Now, for those of you that are already in a small group, I don't want you to check out. I'm, I'm hoping to challenge you to interact with your small group in a new way. And so this morning, Ginny read our passage of Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. And Ephesians 4, 1 starts by saying, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I love the NIV translation of the Bible. It's the one that I use for my own personal devotion in the morning. But I think they are missing a key word here that many of the other translations include, and it's the word therefore. And so it would read, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's so big about What's, so, what's such a big deal about the word therefore? Whenever you see the word therefore, whenever you're reading anything, but especially when you're reading the Bible, you have to be asking the question, what does that therefore refer to? The therefore in this case refers to a hinge in between the first half of the book of Ephesians and the second half of the book of Ephesians. And so in essence, Paul is saying, in light of what I have written up to this point in the book of Ephesians, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What did Paul write in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians that he can make this huge claim on these Christians' lives? In the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul unpacks that, that we were once dead in our transgressions and in our sins. But we have been made alive through our faith in Christ. And not only have we been made alive, but we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the God of the universe. And we who are Gentiles, and I assume that's most of us in this room, we who are Gentiles, we are no longer aliens and foreigners, but we have become citizens of the kingdom of God. And so what Paul is saying here is, is in light of your new identity of being adopted sons and daughters of God and being brought into and having this new citizenship of the kingdom of heaven, he urges the Ephesian church to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so the rest of the book of Ephesians, he unpacks what it means to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
And so that is the, fir <laughs> the first reason why you should be in a small group is because to live a life worthy of the calling you have received in which you are presented, so you are presented in your small group with the opportunity to practice graciously loving other people, which is the first step to living a life worthy of the calling you have received. Ephesians 4.2 states, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, this phrase doesn't make a whole lot of sense outside of the context of it being in community. It's only been in the last 40 to 50 years that we've told ourselves and told people to be gentle and patient with themselves. And being humble with ourselves, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And so it's in community that Paul is calling us to do this. Be completely humble. Humility is not on society's virtue list anymore, is it? It's opposite. Pride is in fact celebrated and encouraged. But there can be nothing more toxic to a small group or a community of having someone who is prideful and looking down on everyone else in the group can there. It's not a good group to be a part of when that happens. And so we are called to be completely humble. But Paul isn't calling us to this false sense of, of humility that Christians often put upon themselves, of, of despising themselves or, or thinking that, that they shouldn't or aren't good enough to offer their opinion or their thoughts on life and faith. But instead, humility is where we think rightly about ourselves. Humility is where we see each other, how God sees us. And so when we see ourselves rightfully, we can still answer confidently in discussion. We can still stand with confidence. But when we're humble, we do not demean other people. We do not belittle their thoughts or their beliefs. Instead, we just get to share our own in humility. We don't assert our rights. We don't force other people to conform to our ways. Instead, we seek to serve one another as Christ served us. And so we're supposed to be humble and gentle. And Clinton Arnold, a New Testament scholar, he says that gentleness and humility are similar and that gentleness does not imply weakness, but self-control and a tempered spirit. And so when we're in our small groups and issues and topics come up that we, that we disagree about, maybe issues such as who we hope got inaugurated on Friday, how do you parent your children to theological matters? These places where disagreements can arise how do we deal with those? Are we harsh and divisive? Or are we gentle, being, bearing with one another? Be patient. When we become hurt, we often tend to become 
angry. And as we stew in our anger, it can often fester into rage and malice and, and ill will towards other people. It can turn towards gossiping towards them. It can even turn back to, what, how can I get them back for what they've done to me? But instead, God has called us to be patient. And the two root words for patient are anger and a long time. God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That slow to anger part, that's patience. And so we are called to be patient and slow to anger with other people as God is slow to anger and patient with you and with me. Are we patient with the other people in our small groups? We are to bear with one another in love. And Clinton Arnold says, Paul here urges his readers to have an attitude of love in tolerating the faults and the sometimes grating personality quirks of others in the church. Ernest Best explains it well when he says, no one ever finds it easy to see and allow for the point of view and action of others. Within the community, Christians do not escape this, but have regularly to deal with what they regard as the faults of their fellow Christians. And for this, love is essential. Community can be difficult, can it? We're all sinners and we all have rough edges that tend to cut into one another. And so oftentimes we, we want to push back and distance ourselves away from the junk of everyone else. But Paul and Jesus are calling us to enter into community, to bear with one another in love. And so I think we, we need to continually be fighting for reconciliation with one another. My wife and I are expecting our first child, a baby girl, in the middle of March. And as that date approaches, I, I've been contemplating on how my parents raised me. And I've been thinking about how, what are the parts of how they raised me that I want to replicate with my own children. And one of the things that I really valued was that my parents always, after my brothers and I fought, they, they required us to reconcile with one another because family is always family. Friends may come and go, but family is still family 60 years on, isn't it? And we've all been adopted into God's eternal family. We're family, and we're going to be family for eternity. So we need to work at reconciling with one another. We need to bear with one another in love. And so I think that's why Paul is encouraging us to develop these virtues of gracious love towards one another, because we're going to need it, and we're going to need every ounce of that if we're going to live out the calling that we have on us. The second reason to join a small group is it is where we have the opportunity to practice maintaining our unity in our community. 
Ephesians 4.3 states, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The, the verb to keep can also be translated as maintain. So make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul here isn't calling us to strive and to, to long for some far-off unity that we can't quite grasp. He's calling us to maintain a unity that we already possess. And the unity that we already possess is formed around our common core of beliefs. But we'll get there more in just a minute. I first want to make note of, make every effort to maintain the unity through the of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Not make an effort, but make every effort. This isn't just, I got in a disagreement with one of my sm the small group members, and I tried to make it right, but it didn't go well, so can I just go to another small group? Jesse, can you, can you place me in a new one? Now, we are called to reconciliation. We are to make every effort to maintain our unity. And so rather than, than us wanting to break apart and divide from one another, I hope that instead that we would enter into a process of reconciliation. And if you need help with reconciling with another person in your small group or someone, someone in your community, I would ask you to ask for help. There are many people here at Waterstone, both on staff and in the community, that are incredibly gifted at bringing about reconciliation. And so we need to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul makes a seemingly abrupt jump from Ephesians 4.3 in this verse into the next three verses where he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What does this have to do with unity? What does this have to do with community? Almost all of the New Testament scholars agree that, that these three verses were an informal early church creed. This was some of the core we believes of the early church. Same as the song, This I Believe, which we sung right before the scripture reading, are the, are, is the creed of our faith today. These are the common core of faith that bind us together. But does a common core of belief really bind people together? I believe it does. When I'm walking down the street and I see someone with a Broncos hat and a Peyton Manning jersey and I, and I kind of make eye contact and say, go Broncos, you better bet that they're making eye contact back, giving me an air fist bump, nodding knowingly and saying, go Broncos, back to me. Us and our love of the Broncos puts us into a separate community than, say, people who root for the Patriots, doesn't it? Now, my love of Jesus 
and the common core of beliefs that we share are, are more central to who I am than my love for the Broncos. And I hope that it is more central to who you are than your love for any sports team. And that, that the more central these beliefs become in our identities, the more it will bind us into unity in our community. And in this common core of belief, it binds us into community and unity with people from all around the world. This last summer, I got to tag along with Nick to visit one of Waterstone's missionary families in Guinea, West Africa, with visiting the Kendalls. And while we were there, Nick and I had the opportunity to teach a preaching class to, to local me young men and women who were hoping to improve their preaching. And I have to admit, Nick and I didn't look a whole lot like those in our class. They all spoke French and tribal languages. Nick and I just speak English. We needed Nathan to translate between us. They have a completely different culture than us. And they have a different lifestyle than us. But despite all of these seemingly insurmountable differences, there was a firm unity between us because of our, our, our common love of Jesus and our desire to be able to preach and communicate God's word better in order to glorify God. But do we really have a common core of belief? Aren't there hundreds if not thousands of denominations around the world of Christians? While there are many different denominations and there are many different theologies, there is something, there, there is a core belief that Christians all around the world and throughout the millennia have been able to affirm. We've been able to affirm the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've been able to affirm the importance of Scripture. And we've also been able to affirm the overarching story of history, of creation, fall, the redemption through Jesus, and the future full restoration and resurrection of those who believe in Jesus. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, says one of the unique things about Christianity is that it is the only truly worldwide religion over 90% of Muslims live in a band from Southeast Asia to the Middle East and Northern Africa. Over 95% of all Hindus are in India in immediate environs. Some 88% of Buddhists are in East Asia. However, about 25% of Christians live in Europe, 25% in Central and South America, 22% in Africa, 15% in growing fast in Asia, and 12% in North America. Professor Richard Bachem writes, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. It is truly a world religion. One of the purposes of Paul writing to the Ephesian church is to exhort them to maintain the unity between Jewish and Gentile believers back in the first century. 
Now, the Jewish and Gentile believers were from different ethnic groups and different cultural groups, and that would have been a, just an insurmountable obstacle to many of them, they would think. But Paul is calling them because of their, their, their common belief and faith in Jesus to remain unified. And so I think if Paul were here today looking at Waterstone, where most of us have grown up in middle-class America, he would be calling us to make every effort to maintain the unity of our community and in our small groups. The third reason why I think you should join a small group is in small groups, it is where we learn to celebrate and utilize our spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4, 7, and 11, and 12, it says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Christ has given each one of us a spiritual gift. Now, if you're looking at that list in verse 11 and you're like, I don't think I have one of those, realize that all of the lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, they're all different. Each list is just a a small segment referring to the greater gifts that Christ gives out. And so Christ has given each one of us gifts. God is an artist. Look around creation. Look at the, the diverse landscapes of this world. And look at the diverse amount of creatures. Have you guys been to an aquarium recently? There are some weird creatures in there. Because God is an artist and he loves diversity. And so God has made each one of us with our unique personalities and our unique personal giftings because he loves diversity. So my question for you this morning is, what is your spiritual gift? What is the gift that Christ has given you? Some of us may know off the top of our head of here are some of the gifts that Christ has given me. Some of you may be sitting there wondering, what is he even talking about? I don't know anything about spiritual gifts. But for those of you who want to know more about your spiritual gifts, I would highly recommend picking up the book, The 210 Project. We have it in the Waterstone Bookstore. It's also on Amazon if you'd rather buy it there. Um, But The 210 Project book, we, we as small groups went through it together a couple of years ago, and it was tremendously helpful for many people. In the 210 Project book, they have you go through various exercises where you personally reflect on the ways that God has gifted you. But they also have you go through exercises where you ask the people who are closest to you and who know you best how they see how God has gifted you. And I think oftentimes we need those other people to be able to see us rightly, to be able to call out our gifts. 
And even sometimes when we know what our gifts are, it takes someone, someone else to gently push us forward and to say, go ahead and step into that gift. I think one of the gifts that Christ has given me, and it's still raw and still in need of a lot of work, is the gift of, of teaching in public speaking. But I'm fairly terrified of standing up here. And so I've needed people in my community to keep on saying, go ahead, keep after that, keep going after it. To push me past my fear, to step into it. And so I wonder, how can we in our small groups see the gifts of other people where they might be too afraid to step forward in faith and we can encourage them gently and say, go ahead, step into what God has called you to. And so how can you do that in your small group? Aren't we supposed to be talking about community this morning? And we're just talking about our, my personal spiritual gifting. How, does, how, how do our personal spiritual giftings relate to community? The reason why Jesus has given us these gifts is that in Ephesians 4.12, it says that Christ has given us these gifts in order to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Another translation of that is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And Paul's not using the word saint as in just people like Mother Teresa and your great aunt Gertrude. He's using the word saint as referring to any and all believers. If you believe in Jesus, you are a saint. No matter how, how cleaned up you feel, you are a saint. And you are called to do the work of ministry. But many of us, we wonder, well, I'm, I'm not working at a church full time, and, and nor do I really want to be. And I, I, I don't think that, that Christ has given me the gift of, of kind of those, those gifts that we assume as pastoral and ministry gifts. But here at Waterstone, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that every single one of us is called into ministry. And that might look different ways for different, for, for the, for different people. But that's good. A couple of weeks back, I was grabbing coffee with one, of, with one of Waterstone's small group leaders. And in talking to him, he, he works as a tech, tech solutions consultant. And so he tries to find tech solutions. And, and oftentimes, people in the tech world wonder, how do my gifts, how could I use those for ministry? But he was excited because he's been talking to other people in his small group and, and, and they have need for tech solutions and so he's offered it and he's been helping them out. And so he sees himself as a force multiplier. He sees it that, that his gift coming in conjunction with other, these, these other people in his small group's gifts, that both of them together have far more impact than if either one was being used by itself. 
Paul in this passage and all over the New Testament, refers to the church as the body of Christ and that each one of us plays a different body part in that body. And so taking it probably far too literally, if say I am the hamstring without someone being the femur, I don't do a whole lot of good by myself. We need all of the body parts to come together for the body to truly function as it was meant to. Here at Waterstone, Nick and Larry, great as they are, with, if it was just them, this would not be a place of incredible transformation, neighboring, and restoration. Without all of you bringing your gifts to the table, Waterstone wouldn't be a whole lot. I hope it's okay that I say that two weeks after they bring me on full time. But, but we need all of you to bring your gifts to the table in order for us to fully live out our kingdom calling as individuals and as a community. Another piece of it is that, that when we are in small groups, we draw out different aspects of one another. We, we shine a light on one another that, that, other, that without being in relationship wouldn't show up. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, states it well. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. We possess each friend not less, but more, as the number of those with whom we share him increases. And so I strongly believe that as we enter into a small group and as we enter into these, these firm communities, that all of a sudden we start to shine our light on one another and we start to draw out the facets of one another that, that might otherwise have gone unnoticed. It might be how our gifts interact that all of a sudden shows a new light on who we are and what God has called us to. We need to fight against a consumer view of small groups, of, of only asking the question, so what am I going to get out of being part of one? I think we need to view small groups as two-way streets of where I learn to graciously love my other small group members, but I also get to be graciously loved by them in return, where we are all called to main, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Not just me, not just the small group leader, but we are all called to make every effort to maintain the unity. And and we are also called where other people draw out our gifts as we draw out their gifts. And so when, when we see small groups as these two-way streets where we're giving something but we're also receiving something in return, it leads to Christian maturity. 
It leads us to look more like Christ. I think that two-way street is what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians 4, 12 to 16. To equip his people, he gave, he gave each one of us gifts in order to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Practicing graciously loving one another, maintaining unity, and calling out the gifts of others as we attempt to use ours and bringing them together, it leads us to become mature. And here at Waterstone, we call that transformation. And that's a rhythm of transform. And that and when we mature, we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Becoming mature oftentimes gets a bad rap these days, I think, but it's something that's really good to grow into. I have something to confess to you guys. I'm not much of a pet person. But even I find puppies cute and adorable. They're so fuzzy and fluffy. But when a full-grown dog is still acting like a puppy, it's not so cute. And it's not adorable. Unless a dog matures and is trained, they're not so much fun to be around. In Ephesians 4.14, Paul states that if we do not reach maturity, we will be like infants. Once again, cute when you can carry them, but an infantile adult, not so cute anymore. And if we don't reach maturity, we will be like infants, or we will be tossed back and forth by the waves and winds of deceitful teaching. And we can all see that people are being pulled in every which direction by the ever-changing cultural trends. But instead, as maturing Christians, we are called, as Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So reason number four for being in a small group is there is no Christian maturity without being in Christian community. For your Christian maturity... I urge you, join a small group. 
For the sake of the kingdom, join a small group. We need your gifting here. We need you to step up and combine it with other people's in order for kingdom objectives. So if you are in a small group here, my question for you this morning is how can you graciously love one another better? How can you make every effort to maintain the unity in your small group? How can you use your gift and call out the gifts of others and work together for, for kingdom purposes? If you're not in a small group, you know this is coming. Go out into the hub afterwards, fill out one of the small group interest forms, and we will work together to find you a small group that fits your schedule. This morning, we're, we're going to partake in communion. And being in community can be hard. It's often easier to go our own way when others wound us. But being in community, it leads to our maturity. We are called to Christian maturity because we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. That person in your community who in your small group is hard to love. They have been adopted into Christ's family, into our family. And so we need to love them as a family member. One of my favorite things to do here at Waterstone is to serve communion. It's incredibly powerful as people walk forward. Some people, their eyes are on the ground. Some people, their eyes are on the elements. And some people are making eye contact. Some people I know well. Some people are just acquaintances. And some people, I don't know who they are. But as I stand there with the bread and the wine and as people come forward and break off the piece of bread and I repeat the phrase, Christ's body broken for you. And they dip that piece of bread into the cup of wine and say, Christ's blood shed for you. All I hear over and over again in my mind is that Christ loved this person enough to die on the cross for. Christ loved this person enough to die on the cross for. And so, as, as you are preparing yourself to come forward for communion, I want you to reflect on the fact that, that Christ died for you because he loved you that much and you have been adopted and you are now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But I also want you to reflect on your community. The people in your community, Christ has died on the cross for them because he loves them that much. The people that are easy to love and the people that might be a little more difficult to love. What would it look like if we truly lived out and viewed people as people whom Christ loved enough to die on the cross for. What would that 